Hey, we're back. This is Joe and TJ from the Schoolhouse 302, and you're listening to our Focus Ed podcast. Focus Ed is your educational leadership podcast. In every episode, it's our mission to focus on one aspect of teaching and leading in school so that you can make progress in your district, school, or classroom with even more knowledge, better understanding, and a clear direction on what to do next for your students and staff. In each show, we ask an expert guest to join us and we dissect their work and tons of other information about leading better and growing faster in schools. We're only doing 14 episodes per school year and we hope you'll listen to all 14. The guest list is incredible. Don't miss a single show and do us a favor. Please like, share, and follow Focus Ed on SoundCloud, iTunes, and our website, theschoolhouse302.com. And now for another episode of Focus Ed. Each episode of Focus Ed, we invite expert guests to join us. And this episode, we have Dr. Tom Herr with us for Focus on the School Leader as the Chief empathy officer. Um, Tom has been on our other show before. We are truly impressed with his work and what it does for leaders, what it does for schools, anyone really focused on children, and specifically how we can create a culture where everyone grows. Uh, Welcome to the show, Tom. Happy to be here talking to you all, and thanks for your kind words. Absolutely. TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more about Tom? Sure thing, Joe. Dr. Tom Herr led schools for 37 years and is currently a scholar in residence at the University of Missouri-St. Louis teaching an educational leadership and policy studies program. His newest book, The Principal as Chief Empathy Officer, Creating a Culture Where Everyone Grows, what we're going to talk about today, shows the role of empathy in relationships and leadership. Her believes that we can all grow our empathy, and we want to learn more about that today. He currently writes a monthly leadership blog for ASCD and wrote a monthly column, The Principal Connection, from 2004 to 2018. His previous two books focused on the importance of SEL to students and staff. The first one called Taking Social and Emotional Learning School-Wide. We love that book. We've interviewed Tom about it. And The Formative Five. Fostering Grit, Empathy, and Other Success Skills Every Student Needs. And I know, Joe, you love that book, too. Her has written four other books, more than 170 articles, and has presented at schools and conferences around the world on grit, leadership, multiple intelligence, faculty, collegiality, empathy, and the formative five. Okay, Tom, we want to jump right into the podcast today. Your book, your new book, places the school leader, you say the principal, but we say all school leaders, specifically the principal, though, as the chief empathy officer. What exactly does that mean, and what should we take from it? Well, thanks. Thanks for that uh, nice introduction. The only thing you should have said is that Tom led schools for 37 years despite his youthful appearance. You know, that would have been good. Um, when we talk about leaders, and you're right, right, TJ, it's not just principals, it's anybody who plays a leadership role, regardless of the title. And in fact, as we all know, in most schools, that's just about everybody. Teachers, I ran uh, schools, teachers had leadership positions, leadership roles, people turned to them. So it's not just the principal. 
my bias, my working bias is that leadership is about relationships. And if you look at people who are good leaders, they're good leaders, not because of their title or their degree, or even what they know, as much as that people trust them, people value them, people want to do what they want because they know they're a good person. And that's really what empathy is. When you talk about being an empathic leader, leading with empathy, what I'm really saying is you lead with your relationship rather than your title, rather than a hierarchical chart. Tom, that w requires really a lot of, you know, self-reflection, really also the ability to feel comfortable in one's own skin, because you know that a lot of leaders would like to leverage their title. We know that doesn't work in the long run. It may get something done in a short run, but certainly not to lead and grow a school. What are some things that leaders can do to become more empathetic, to, to realize that it is relationships that matter first and be willing to be vulnerable and lead that way? Because that's not easy to do. Wonderful question. Yeah. And so let me give you three, three pieces of that, three responses. And the first one, and I believe I mentioned this the last time when we spoke, and I'm a big believer that anything that you want to do, whether you're a classroom teacher, an instructional coach, an AP, a principal, a superintendent, or whatever, you need to do it with both intentionality and transparency. The intentionality, of course, you're choosing to do it, but I think everything should be transparent. So in my book, I got lots of things that I did, virtually everything that I did in my book that I described, I shared with the faculty. I told them why I was doing it and what I was doing. So they were a part of that. So to come back to your question with the three, three points, the first one is I think if I wanna be a chief empathy officer, regardless of my position, I'm gonna use the term empathy. I'm gonna get some accountability because I'm gonna talk about it. I'm gonna say to people, hey, I want this school to be a place where empathy is really part of the culture, where we all care for one another, we all listen to one another, we all know what, what people are thinking and feeling. So I'm gonna put that out there. And then part of, of growing your empathy is being aware of what you don't know. And I think there's, there's two pieces of that. The first one is real easy and it's something that good leaders should do always. And that is you've got to listen. And it's not just listen, you've got to aggressively listen. That means you need to seek out other people. You need to see that, seek out opinions. In my book, I talk a great deal about the surveys I use. I use lots of surveys. One tip that I would give to people is my surveys are always anonymous, but the last question says, although this is an anonymous survey, I'd like to continue the dialogue. If you're comfortable, please give me your email address. Well, it's amazing. A third to half of the people do that. So what we've got then is not just somebody giving me their thoughts. We've got the beginning or the continuation of a dialogue. Uh, I did other things that I talked about in the book. One of those, I ran schools, as you said, when you introduced me, I would do breakfast with Tom three or four times a year. And that was often on a PD day. We'd start at nine. I'd have breakfast at eight. I'd bring the pastries and I'd say to everybody, the agenda is yours. Talk about whatever you want and just bring people in the room, staff. Typically, I'd have a third of the staff come, sometimes more, and I'd just sit and say, what's on your mind? And it was amazing what people asked, what they wanted to, to hear about, what they wanted reactions to. But it was also a real good way of letting them know that I really wanted to know what they were thinking. 
The other thing about which I talked about in the book that I had not done previously is I'm really suggesting that we all engage in what I call empathy conversations. And an empathy conversation is when you initiate it one, you say to people, your staff, hey, I'm going to have an empathy conversation. They're going to raise their, their eyebrows. What do you mean an empathy conversation? What's going on? And so I explained to them, and I've done this with my students at the University of Missouri St. Louis. Every student I have an empathy conversation with every semester. And I say, I want to get to know you as a human being. I want to hear about where you grew up. What was school like for you? At what age did you decide to be an educator? What do you do for fun? Tell me about your family. And I want to get to know them. If people are, are excited about that, don't need to buy the book. If you're excited about that and you want to pursue it, a tip I would give you is the reality is in most contexts, if that administrator says that to you, you're thinking, what's going on here? This is something new. So what I'm advocating is that when I do that, I explain it. And then I begin by sharing a bit about myself. Hey, it's really great to talk to you, CJ. Before I ask you some questions, let me, let me tell you about my background a bit. And when I disclose when I'm forthcoming, that makes it much more likely the other person will reciprocate. And what happens then over time is we become not just people who are all in the same school working together. We become colleagues, maybe, maybe friends, but we become colleagues. And I think in most schools, there's a natural order of things. And that is you did a circle diagram, you know, a sociogram. We all have people with whom we're close. And unless you work at it, you tend up talking to those people all the time. And that becomes your inner circle, irrespective of their title. Those are the people you turn to. Those are the people you like. Guess what? They like you. So what this does is a way of widening and expanding. The other thing about which I talk when you talk about growing your empathy is that we all live in a cultural bubble. And that is a term I think that's gotten much more popularized over the last decade because of the political bubble in which we all are. Well, the reality is we all live in a bubble in general. If you look at the people with whom you associate, with whom you have run, chances are they're probably most likely same age group, same race, same socioeconomic status. They like the same sports. Maybe they even live in the same neighborhood. If you look at it in a school, often we get the same kind of phenomenon. Now there it may be that the English department really hangs out together or the teachers who have young children hang out together. The bubble's there. And so one of the things about which I write in the book is we all need to talk about the bubble, make everybody aware of it. That comes back to, to Joe's point about being out there, my point about being transparent. And then in my book, I have specific things you can do to get out of your bubble, making a point of looking at things differently. For school administrators, for example, one of the things I suggest, and I apologize up front because we never have enough time, is I think school administrators should make a point of going to an adjacent school district and sitting in on a board meeting and hearing what's the dialogue there, what, what are the issues there, to what degree does your board adhere to what is in the mission statement, both in their formal actions and in their informal discussions? What about other boards? Let's get out of the neighborhood. What does that look like? Go to a shopping mall 20 minutes away. Make a point of talking to somebody who's 30 years different in age. And if there's an intentionality to that, and with that intentionality, there has to be a reservation, if you will, on judgment. So when I, when I talk to you, and I find out that you're looking at things differently than I do. My tendency is not to say, well, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you seeing things the way I am? My goal should be to say, why do you think that? What are you thinking? How can I understand? So 
to end this overly long answer, when we talk about this, what I'm not advocating is a school that everybody sees everything the same. Not only would that be boring, I don't think it would be healthy for kids. What I am advocating is a school where we all have empathy, we all trust one another, we respect one another. And even when we don't agree, we have faith that the other person is coming from a legitimate position, something that they believe, and that enables us to work together and ultimately do something that's going to benefit our students. It's a great answer. I mean, Tom, I want to address a little bit, though, about the concept of leadership, relationships, and just any maybe skeptic on the call. What I mean, Joe and I teach about praise and feedback, and a lot of what we've done in our research is found that 70% of people are still skeptical about celebrating others at work, leaders that is, in terms of what that might do to the relationship that they have, pumping people up and then having to hold them accountable later to something else. Do you run into that at all in terms of people not wanting to share about themselves, not wanting to be vulnerable for fear that, well, but I still have to be the boss of this place. And that requires me to have to tell people that they also do things wrong. Like where's the cross section there? And what would you say to a skeptic about that? Or even somebody who's just afraid? Well, I'm sitting here kind of stunned at the 70%. I would like it to be a lower number, but I don't dispute it. Too often, and you know, I'm trained as an administrator, too often we come into a situation thinking that we've got to have all the answers. I mean, Roland Barth wrote about that. He talked about the imposter syndrome. And the reality is, if I'm in charge of the school officially, all that means is I'm officially in charge. It doesn't mean I know more than the people around me. In fact, if I'm really smart, I know that the people around me have knowledge that I don't have. So when we talk about being a leader who leads through empathy, one of the things that leader has to accept, and Joe kind of raised this in his question before, is that all of us are smarter than any one of us. And if I'm going to get something done, I don't get it done because Tom works harder, Tom's smarter. I get it done because Tom's part of a team. And that means I have to basically delegate some decisions, some things that I'm not used to doing. In, in the book, I talk about decision-making and I, I use a numerical quotient just to kind of get a handle on it. And one of the things I see that young administrators often run into trouble with is they think that they've got the answer and you know whatever the question is, they know their answers are nine or 10 and they're not gonna settle for anything other than a nine or 10. And my attitude is, first of all, they probably don't have the right answer if they think that. But even if they do, if a seven or eight gets everybody on board, guess what? That seven or eight is stronger than my nine or 10. What I really want is everybody coming together and working together. And the more communication we can have, the more likely that is to happen. To come back to your, to your question, JT, what I think is a, an inhibition now that is much worse than it used to be is I see and hear too many administrators who don't want to get into anything that's not formal curriculum, if you will, because they don't want to have the possibility of anybody being uncomfortable or any pushback. We've become so politically sensitive that we're reluctant to get anything where there might be disagreement. And again, coming back to empathy, I think talking about what that's like, talking about why that's important. For me, and one of the things uh, about, which I wrote in the book is John Gottman, G-O-T-T-M-A-N is a marriage counselor. And basically he talks about relationships and his premise is that to maintain a really healthy, positive relationship with anybody, with anybody, 
with your significant other, with your children, with your friends, with your coworkers, you've got to have about a five to one positive to negative ratio of comments. Well, that's really hard to do. Um, and I always say, I try to get the five to one, maybe because I'm trying to get the five, I get the 3.1 to one, you know, 2.79, whatever. But the reason why I tell that whole story here is when I took it to my faculty, I wanted to, to be something that we all embrace with one another. But I presented it to them as I want you all to think about a five to one with your students. Well, no surprise. They endorsed that. They were all over it. They were like, this is really great. Of course, we should do that. It's going to help our kids. And then I said, yes, but guess what? It's not just us and our kids. We need to be that way with one another. And the room got quiet. And I said, and let me start off and say, I need to do that with you. I need to make sure I work to have a five to one positive to negative ratio with each one of you. And one of my teachers said, well, it's about time. But the point is that by looking at it through a kid lens, people were willing to accept it and go out on a limb. And I think the same thing with empathy. If I was leading a school and I got really excited about this, I'd go back. The first thing I would do is convene a group of teachers, whether I had a group already, my leadership group, or whether I just said, hey, I heard this speaker. I'm not sure he's on target. Who wants to meet with me and talk about it? But I'd want to get a small circle coming together, talking about empathy. And the first thing I would say is, let's look at us and our students in empathy. Let's start there. And at the same time we start there, let's also start with us. And I think that's a way that gets at some of the hesitation, some of the inhibition, some of the vulnerability to which you accurately refer. And Tom, to go down this road a little more, because I, I want to point out you have given some very clear suggestions that listeners and those on this call can put into practice right away. Mostly what you just said about maybe a small group getting together, talking about empathy with students. Can you talk about that a little more, like what that would look like with the students? Would this be, I mean, as, as in the weeds as possible, should the group create like a little worksheet to help guide? Because I think sometimes we also get in our own way of fear of saying the wrong thing or saying too much, asking the wrong question, where do boundaries come in? You know, so we want to have these meaningful conversations. How would you suggest the group go forward with creating something to have a great dialogue with students. Wonderful. So, so let me just start off and throw out, there's a book by Paul Tuff called Helping Children Learn. Now, let me back up his, the book that he got lots of acclaim for is called How Children Learn. And that was the book in which he began promulgating grit and he you know, sold millions of copies at a speaker store. Helping Children Learn was a subsequent book much smaller and I think actually stronger. And in that book, he talked about what kids, particularly kids who aren't doing well in school, particularly kids who are poor, particularly kids who are kids of color, what they need. And he talked about the fact that they need to feel they can succeed. They need to feel the work is important. And here's why I'm headed. They need to feel known. They need to feel that they are important to the people in the building. And to me, you know, you can Google that or you can just take what I said. So what I would do is say, hey, I want to talk about empathy. I think it's a quality that, that everybody can benefit from. It's one of Tom Hurst's success skills in the formative five, but it's not something we can just mandate. It's something that has to be developed organically by us. Who'd like to get together with me and talk about that? So, you know, you get three, five, seven teachers or whatever. 
talk about that, do some reading so we know what empathy is, how empathy is different than sympathy. And then I would say, let's talk about what we can do to find out about our kids. Now, to come back to your, your question, Joe, it's going to take some time. So I might say, hey, guess what? Let's all agree that on Wednesdays and Fridays from this time or whatever, let's stop the formal curriculum and let's just take that as time to get to know our kids. How can we do that? What can we ask? How can we elicit? Uh, the empathy conversation to which I referred earlier probably isn't going to work with 20 kids, 30 kids, or if you're a high school teacher with 100, but you could do something. JT, when he introduced me, talked about the blog I've been writing for ASCD, and he can share you the link or I can later. But one of the things I wrote about was that when we start school at the beginning of the school year, a mistake that teachers make often, and I made it, was that the night before school starts, everybody's up till midnight, the room looks beautiful, you walk in, it is just per perfect. Uh, I did that for years, every one of my teachers did that for years. Now that I'm writing and thinking about empathy, I'm saying, hold on a second, as great as that room looks, whose room is it? It's the teacher's room. Where is the place for the kids to have a role? What does it look like that they can do? How can we as a teacher have that room three quarters, two thirds ready, but have space for the kids to put an imprint on that? Kids to bring family photos, family drawings, however they define family. Kids to have examples of what they did this summer. Do a bar graph with hobbies. Do things where you find out about the kids, learn about them, develop empathy, understanding from where they're coming. And I think from there, then it's a segue to talk about at a faculty meeting. Uh, in my book, I gave some very specific examples of faculty meetings, things you could do. One of those is I talked about the fact that, talking about empathy, a uh, concern that I have is empathy fatigue. Uh, particularly in these COVID days, people are just worn out, they're stretched out. And to me, I think you have a faculty meeting and talk very specifically about empathy, about empathy fatigue and what you can do. So again, it comes back to the point we made earlier about being not only intentional, but being transparent, having it being something specifically we can get our hands around. At the beginning of the school year, if this is really an important thrust, I would suggest that every adult in the building, not every faculty member, not every, every adult in the building, including the crossing guard, cafeteria people, they should all have a goal on empathy. Now, some people will have a written goal they submit to a boss. Other people will just talk about it. But part of that goal process is people say, here's what I'm going to do to increase my empathy. And I want everybody to think about that and talk about that because it, definitely within that, it's making the effort to get to know other people to get to know how they're thinking and how they're feeling. I wanna ask, I can't help myself with the subtitle of the book and it's a bit of a follow-up on what you're talking about. So the subtitle as it's, it's written, Tom, is creating a culture where everyone grows. Now, does that mean what you're talking about here, everyone grows because we learn more about each other and we grow in that way? Or is there something also about our capacity to learn and lead that has to do with empathy in this conversation? All of the above, all of the above. Because my bias is that as we become more empathic, as we become better at understanding the people with whom we work and learn, we're going to work and learn more. I talked earlier in my previous books, and I also do in this one, about Roland Barth and faculty collegiality. You know, and Barth's premise is if children are to grow and learn, the adults must grow and learn. So as a school leader, 
I spent most of my energy candidly on trying to create a setting in which the adults were learners, because I knew if the adults were learners, kids were going to be learners too. Likewise with empathy, if I can create an empathic relationship, not only with me and my staff, but among them, then what's going to happen is that's going to transmit to the kids. We're all going to feel more empathy to them and everybody's going to learn more. We're going to learn more in formal ways, i.e. standardized achievement tests, but we're all also going to learn more because we're going to have more confidence and trust in the people around us and everybody, 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 that's not a typo, everybody is going to come to school more enthusiastic about learning. Um, along that line with adults as, as learners and developing this whole degree of empathy and this skill, what does this or how does this impact rather the experience of students in school? How do you see this? You know, you mentioned some of the formal ways and some of the growth, but what are like practical ways we should expect to see this effect and improve the student experience in schools? I think one of the things we would see, and this is, this is a biggie for me, is I think students would be more engaged. I want students, and you know, I recognize there's some kids are good students, some kids are less good, I get all that. But I want every kid to come to school feeling like she has a place there, she has a chance to succeed, and people care about her. And I think in an empathic situation, when the leader, not just the principal, when the leader, whether it's a teacher leader, whatever the role is, when that leader approaches situations with empathy, remember I started off and I said leadership is about relationships. When that is firm in a school, what we have then is we have trust that gets developed. People are willing to take risks. I want teachers to try doing new things, knowing that if they fail, that's okay, because they're going to learn and they'll come back stronger. They're not going to be criticized. They'll take a risk because they know the people who work with them, the people who supervise them, understand that growth isn't always smooth. If we want people to grow, we've got to give them the encouragement and the respect to get out of their comfort zone. That comes from empathy. Likewise with kids. I want kids knowing that no matter how well or how not well they do on a standardized test, they're more than that standardized test. Uh, in the class that I teach at the university, one of the things we've been having fun discussions about is what you see in the halls and walls in schools. And one of my comments is that when you walk in a school and look at the halls and walls, that tells you the values. In many schools, particularly elementary schools, there's lots of stuff up and that's really good. Even then, however, if you stop and look, what you'll see is that many of the things that are up, it's the perfect paper and it's the great spelling test and it's the wonderful art. And I'm saying, hold on, there's a lot of kids who never make it to the wall. What about that? So in my class, we're talking about what could you put up in the walls of a high school that would show empathy? How could you capture the fact that empathy is something we're all trying to develop? Now, I don't have that answer, but I'll tell you, the discussion among the faculty and maybe the faculty and students about what to do would be unbelievably valuable. What went up would be less good than the dialogue to get it there. That's great. And that I think everybody on this call and everybody listening is jotting that down right now. What are we putting on the walls? Let's do a double check of what is on those walls. Does it communicate the vision? Does it communicate what we value from our students, including their artwork, their work, and the things that they produce in school that we value so much as, as teachers? Let's hang it up. Tom, I want to stay with the topic of growth. 
we started out with your bio. You've written a bunch of books. This recent book about the principal as chief empathy officer, 170 articles. You continue to write. You continue to read. Our listeners love to hear. You've mentioned a couple of books. We'll link to those in the show notes. Any other resources for learning, growing, leading, even if it's not just empathy, where do you go as a, as a learner, as a leader? And, and what, what can we point to for our listeners? Well, I read, you know, for better and worse, I read a lot that's not education. I read a lot of business stuff. I read a lot of political stuff. A book that I recommend highly that everybody should read after you read all of mine, of course, is Daniel Coyle's book, The Culture Code. Coyle looks wonderfully specifically at how you can build teams. I think that is a great piece. So I, I read a lot. I've been getting, every day I get a fast company email Every day I get an email from the Harvard Business Review and they have little links there. So I read those. My best resource though, candidly, is the people around me. Uh, I'm, I'm lucky enough to know really bright and thoughtful people, many of whom are not educators, but I love to hear how they're learning, how they're growing. And to me, getting out of the comfort zone is really, really important. So reading things maybe that I wouldn't have read in the past, I've always read business stuff. I now read more fiction than I used to. And I find that really interesting as a way to kind of expand my mind. Yeah, I don't want to miss the point, Tom, that you made earlier that, you know, it's important to ensure that, you know, our circle of friends don't always look like us or the same age of us. And I think that would help also build empathy you know, we, we know the saying birds of a feather flock together, but it truly can limit your thinking and how you see the world. So I think it's, I think it's fascinating. You find your circle and those you hang out with also being some of your greatest teachers. Yeah. And Joe, let, let me give you a specific on that. And when I say this, and I can see you all on the screen, metaphorically, you're going to roll your eyes because you don't have more time. But trust me, this is worthwhile. I belong to a book group, and there are five of us, and I'm the only educator. And we meet every four to six weeks, and we, we take turns choosing books. And whoever chooses the book picks the restaurant. And it's fascinating to me. One guy's an attorney, one's a banker, one is a business person, another's a finance guy. And we often talk about education. And it's really interesting for me to hear their cut on issues that we're reading about in the newspaper. And the, the story that I just told you about my book group, often when I'll give presentations at conferences, I would like to end by asking, what are you doing for yourself? Because as educators, we're all too busy at doing things for everybody else. And you know, you can't pour from an empty cup. So I like to end the session by asking people to think what they're doing, turn, talk to a neighbor. What are you doing to take care of yourself? Too often, we don't do that. We've got kids, we've got spouse, we've got too much to do. In fact, I sent out an email about two hours ago. I've got a group of 50 administrators with whom I often email regularly. If you'd like to be on that, send me an email, I'll add you to the list. The email I sent about two hours ago, two hours ago, I said, spring break is coming for most of us, you may be in it. Here's my request to you, don't try to catch up over spring break. A, you're not gonna catch up. B, you're gonna come back and the last leg is a sprint you need to be refreshed. So coming back to Joe's point, when you talk about getting out of the circle, it's not a book group with other educators. It's people who come from different perspectives. And it seems to me when we talk about 
taking care of ourselves. It's making time to do things that are fun and also making time, I think, consciously, specifically to do things with people who don't have our worldview. Tom, final question that we have, is there a book that you wish someone would write? A book that I would like to see somebody write is, okay, Tom Hur talks a great deal about how to take care of yourself. He didn't do a good job when he was running a school. Here's what you really should do. And that would be a book I would be happy to read. I love it. That's great. I think we can all relate to that, telling others to use self-care and then not doing it ourselves. Again, this has been a great interview, Tom. We really appreciate your time. Is there anything else that you would like to add or close with today? No, I just want to thank everybody for being here. And again, take care of yourself. You know, we've all got too much to do. Again, it's not a, a sprint, it's a marathon. Take care of yourself and good luck. And thank you for joining me. And send me an email if you want to get added to my list of administrators to whom I periodically send out stuff. Well, fantastic. You heard it here on Focus Ed, everyone. Dr. Tom Herr, a virtual round of applause, please, for our, from our live audience. And everyone listening at home, don't forget to follow the schoolhouse302.com for podcasts, blog posts, books to read, and more. We'll be back soon with another episode of Focus Ed. Until then, stay focused. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Joe, you know what leaders need these days? What's that, TJ? Sleep. A good night's rest, self-care. We've heard it over and over and over again from our guests on the podcast that you can't pour from an empty cup. Leaders need sleep. One of the number one ways you can replenish yourself and lead better is a good night's sleep. I hear you, but you know what? I'm so tired. I don't even like thinking about, you know, getting a good night's sleep. But, you know, do tell, how do we go about getting better sleep? Well, I think that's part of your problem is you need a better bed. It always starts with the bed. That's why we recommend GhostBed, our sponsor, with 30,000-plus five-star reviews. Their patented sleep and cooling technology gets you to sleep faster and longer than any other bed. That's right. And their handcrafted mattresses come with a 101-night at-home sleep trial and a two times the industry standard warranty. They're absolutely certain that their beds will work for you. And with free shipping within 24 hours of your purchase, it's fantastic support from the company. And guess what? Just for being a listener at the Schoolhouse 302, you get 30% off with the use of our code SH302 at checkout. You go to ghostbed.com, you get some sleep so that you can lead better and grow faster. You use SH302 at checkout. Absolutely. And last thing, even if you don't need a bed, you're thinking, wow, I would love to try out Ghostbed, but I just bought a bed. Refer someone else for a bed at ghostbed.com. You'll get a hundred bucks for helping someone else get a good night's rest. Wow, that's 30% off with SH302 code at ghostbed.com. A hundred bucks for your referral if you get somebody else a good night's sleep. Better sleep for you, better leadership. Ghostbed.com, you can't beat it. Ghostbed.com.